The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 464th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to a location that's right down the road from our friends over at Hillbilly Horror Stories, Jerry and Tracy Polly. This is Whitehall of Kentucky. It's in Richmond, and it was suggested by our listener, Angela Gabhart. Before we get into telling you the history and haunts of this location, we want to welcome into the spectacular crew. Kay, Crystal, Jonathan, and CJ. Thank you so much for joining us in our Facebook group. And now this moment, Noddity. Many people enjoy trying unusual cuisines that can oftentimes be considered exotic, whether it's trying escargot, frog legs, or something similar. However, a meal consisting of raccoon as the main course would surpass the usual exotic label. Back in the 1920s, during the presidency of Calvin Coolidge, many farmers would send various things to the White House to be served for the president's Thanksgiving meal. One such farmer from Mississippi sent a live raccoon. The president and first lady could not fathom making a meal out of the creature and decided to keep the raccoon as a pet. The female raccoon was thereby named Rebecca, and for Christmas, received an embroidered collar inscribed with White House Raccoon. Rebecca was allowed to roam the White House, sometimes getting into mischief as only a raccoon could. She was known to occasionally unscrew light bulbs, dig into house plants, and open cabinets. When outdoors, she would walk on a leash, and she had her own treehouse built on the grounds. Rebecca even enjoyed participating in events like the White House Easter Egg Roll. The Procyonid was clearly very loved by her family, with the Coolidge's even bringing her on vacation with them when they traveled to the Black Hills. Consuming a meal of raccoon may be considered odd to some, but having a raccoon as a White House pet most certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. In 
December on the 1st in 1761, Anna Maria Tussaud was born in Strasbourg, France. Tussaud's father passed before her birth, and when she was six years old, her mother moved them to Switzerland. Once there, they moved in with a local doctor, with Marie acting as a housekeeper. The doctor's name was Philippe Curtius, and Tussaud called him uncle. Curtius had a talent for wax modeling, eventually moving to Paris in 1765 to establish a cabinet de portraits in Cire. Marie and her mother joined the doctor in Paris a year later, and she began learning from her uncle the art of wax modeling. She showed promise, and in 1777, she created her first wax figure in the likeness of Voltaire. In 1794, when Curtius died, he left his collection of wax works to Tussaud. In 1802, Marie began touring her art, but with little success, left for Edinburgh in 1803. In 1835, after touring Britain for 33 years, Tussaud established her first permanent exhibition on Baker Street on the upper floor of the Baker Street Bazaar. Marie Tussaud died in her sleep in London on the 16th of April in 1850 at the age of 88. The museums that her wax creations inspired now number over 20 worldwide. Whitehall State Historic Site is located in Richmond, Kentucky, the bluegrass part of the state. The site features the former home of one of the most reviled and celebrated men of his time, Kentucky legislator Cassius Marcellus Clay. He was a newspaper editor, politician, soldier, and Southern emancipator. The mansion dates back to 1799 and is today a museum with a few spirits. Join us as we explore the life of Clay and the history and hauntings of Whitehall. Richmond, Kentucky is the state's sixth largest city and home to Fort Boonesboro, which is named for Daniel Boone, who set up the settlement with his group of men in 1775. This was the second settlement in Kentucky. It is said that this area of Kentucky is where, quote, the rolling hills of the bluegrass meet the foothills of the Appalachians. That's probably what brought many of the indigenous people here to hunt and live. Unknown groups were here for thousands of years, followed by the Shawnee, Cherokee, and Wyandotte. The city of Richmond was officially founded in 1798 by Colonel John Miller, who came to the area for the water. You don't usually hear that. Usually they come for something else, but they really loved the spring water here. Yeah, apparently. And I also read that he really enjoyed the Native Americans that were in the area because they were more friendly than in other places. So one of the reasons why he came here. The name was inspired by the city where Miller was born. Richmond in Virginia, which is why you were almost going to say Richmond, Virginia earlier. (laughs) This is true. Richmond became the county seat for Madison County. During the Civil War, the Battle of Richmond was fought here on August 30th, 1862, and the Confederates pounded the Union in a very lopsided win. This helped to bring the state of Kentucky under Confederate control, and by September 2nd, the capital of Kentucky, Frankfort, fell. This was the only Union capital to fall to the South during the war. I didn't know that little factoid. One of the most well-known figures from this town would be a member of the politically prominent Clay family. I'm sure many people have heard of Henry Clay, and this is one of his family members. In the 1800s, holding to abolitionist views wasn't popular in the South for obvious reasons. 
Cassius Clay was a man who believed strongly in emancipation, and he was even open to a street fight or two against anyone who didn't approve of his convictions. Clay was no stranger to fights, and he was no stranger to scandal. Cassius Marcellus Clay was born on October 19, 1810, to Green Clay. Who names their child Green when your last name is Clay? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What's your name? Green Clay. And Green Clay was a cousin to Senator Henry Clay. Green Clay was one of the wealthiest men in Kentucky and owned a large plantation with slaves. He also owned taverns, distilleries, and ferries and served in the Kentucky General Assembly. Clay County, Kentucky is named for him. Cassius was deeply affected by something that happened in his youth on his father's plantation. He already didn't approve of his father owning slaves. One of the young enslaved girls named Mary was a playmate for him. A cruel overseer threatened her once and she stabbed him to death out of fear. People claimed it was self-defense and she was acquitted by a jury of white men, a testament to the real danger she had been in. I think we can all imagine how he was threatening her, probably, and why she stabbed him. However, that didn't stop Cassius's brother, Sidney, from selling Mary down the river, and the young boy carried that experience with him. He was devastated. Cassius grew into a strong, very tall, and good-looking man who excelled at sports. He attended Transylvania University and then Yale College. It was here at Yale in 1832 that Cassius heard abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison speak. This inspired Clay to pursue joining the anti-abolitionist movement that was growing in America. The only part of the movement he didn't embrace was an immediate abolition to slavery. He felt that using the political system to gradually change things would work best. This is what made him an emancipator rather than an abolitionist. Kelly, sometimes people just use those terms interchangeably, and while they have very similar beliefs, obviously they want all men to be free. Emancipators want to kind of work through the political system to get it taken care of, whereas an abolitionist is just like, we need to stop it absolutely right now. Boom. Clearly, we all know exactly which way Abraham Lincoln leaned when we had the Emancipation Proclamation. Clay married Mary Jane Warfield in 1833, and they had 10 children, with four of them making it to adulthood. So they lost six children. That's a lot. So sad. Mary Jane would leave Clay after 45 years of marriage And he divorced her for abandonment. So she's like, I'm leaving you. And he's like, well, I'm going to divorce you then for leaving me. She left him because of his numerous infidelities, one of which led him to fathering a son with another woman whom he later adopted officially. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in a minute. The next marriage for Clay would be even more scandalous. In 1894, Clay married Dora Richardson, an orphaned girl. And yes, we're using the term girl for a reason because it is thought that Dora ranged anywhere from 12 to 16 years of age. I mostly saw 15, so that's probably about where she was, but there were some who thought maybe she could have been as young as 12 based on census records. That's already a lot to stomach, but here's the real kicker. Clay was 84 years old. Mm -hmm. I'm sure a 15-year-old would want to marry an 84-year-old. The sheriff brought a posse to Clay's house to rescue Dora but she told them all that she was willingly there. She may have done this for their own protection because it said that Clay had a loaded cannon. What? (laughs) Yep, it was a loaded cannon. All right, let me start that part over. Because it is said that Clay had a loaded cannon near the doorway that he was ready to fire. (laughs) Get off my lawn. That's one way Uh, to tell him. Yeah. (laughs) He and Dora would divorce after four years of marriage. 
Shocker. Yeah. I don't know Gosh. why she wouldn't want to be with him anymore. You can imagine at this time, we're talking the late 1800s, and he's got two divorces under his belt now. That seems enough scandal right there. And he's 84. I mean, that's a pretty ripe old age for that time frame. Yeah. I mean, what are you doing marrying somebody at 84 anyway? Clay was a fiery man, even in his 80s. And he not only proved that with the canon story, but when he was 89, three men broke into his house intent on robbing him. Clay defended himself with a knife and left one man stabbed to death in the library. Another dead in the ice house where he had bled out and a third went screaming into the night. Clay died in 1903 at the age of 92 from natural causes. He sounds like a piece of work. (laughs) I think so. He definitely was quite the character. And it just blows my mind how you have three men that break into this house. He's 89. They're thinking, we're going to take this guy down easily. And they all end up getting stabbed by him. And two dead. And I don't even know what happened to the third one. I said he was fiery. You did. (laughs) It's true. He went running off into the woods like a scared little girl. That's where the third one went. (laughs) wonder if he peed his pants, too. The Clay family was very involved in politics. Cassius himself served three terms in the Kentucky House of Representatives and helped start the Republican Party. His emancipation activism made him many enemies, and in 1843, a man named Sam Brown tried to assassinate him. Brown shot Clay in the chest, and despite being wounded, Clay pulled out his Bowie knife and took off Brown's nose, ear, and removed one of his eyes. Oh, my word. And let me just say, we were corrected on how to say... Bowie knife, that it's not Bowie knife, because in Texas they say Bowie knife. Now, for a lot of us, we've grown up saying Bowie knife. Yeah, that was the only way I'd ever heard it pronounced, actually. So we apologize to Texans, but our way of saying it is Bowie, and that's how David Bowie said his name, and that's where he got the name from. This is true. He was inspired by, it's not just he pulled it out of anywhere, it was Bowie. So we'll say it Bowie for you Texans. And he used that knife pretty handily there. I mean, that guy was very sorry. He tried to assassinate him for sure. How dare you shoot me? Cassius decided to start a paper in 1845 called True American, and this featured news and articles on emancipation. The office was in Lexington, but after numerous death threats and a break-in that resulted in his printing equipment being stolen, Cassius moved the newspaper office to Cincinnati, Ohio. When Abraham Lincoln ran for the presidency, Clay backed him and befriended him. After Lincoln won, he appointed Cassius as minister to the Russian court in St. Petersburg in 1861. It would be in Russia that he would father that illegitimate son. So you can imagine being his wife, you're sitting at home, keeping the home fires burning, <laughs> taking care of the say children. <laughs> and we'll, we haven't talked about the house yet, but she's the one who took care of all of the remodeling and restoration that they're going to do to this thing all on her own while her husband's away for years in Russia. He comes home after leaving you to do all of this on your own, and he brings home a boy and says, "Uh, I adopted him. He's my son. First of all, you'd be like, without consulting me. And then second of all, you'd go, "Uh uh-huh, where did he actually come from? Clay was key in getting Russia to back Union forces during the Civil War. This kept Britain and France from backing the Confederacy. This is something that I didn't know about the Civil War. We just thought it was only our war here. But apparently this was something that affected Europe over there as well. There was a real fear for some reason. I'm assuming it's for the production of cotton and the other goods coming out of the South that Britain and France were going to be like, okay, well, we're going to help the Confederacy out. And so they needed Russia to kind of tamp that down. Clay was also key to Lincoln issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. 
Lincoln had asked Clay to serve as major general for the Union, and Clay refused to take the commission unless Lincoln freed the slaves in the Confederacy. Lincoln asked him to see how Kentucky felt about emancipation. Clay returned to D.C., and Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Clay returned to Russia in March of 1863 and stayed there until 1869. During his tenure, he negotiated the purchase of Alaska. Clay left politics and disapproved of Reconstruction. He supported Democrat candidates for a while and then returned to the Republican Party and was even elected president of the Kentucky Constitutional Convention in 1890. Laura Clay was one of Cassius's daughters. She was a big proponent of women's suffrage and states' rights. And even more incredibly, she was the first woman to be nominated for U.S. president by a major political party. Now, many listeners, Kelly, are probably wondering about that Cassius Clay name and its connection to boxing legend Muhammad Ali, because when you first hear it, that's the only Cassius Clay I've ever actually known. The name does come from this Clay. Herman Heaton Clay had been a descendant of African-American slaves, and he named his son Cassius Marcellus Clay in honor of the Emancipator. That Cassius gave his son the same name, and he would later change his name to Muhammad Ali after his conversion to Islam. So Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali was actually Cassius Clay Jr. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Diane, this holiday season, I really want to give my dad something that makes him feel special and unique, just like our relationship. That's why I want to give him StoryWorth. It's such a great idea, Kelly. We did that for my mom, and we have this great keepsake book now. She's got one. We've got one. My sister and her family have one. And we'll have this to treasure for decades. The grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, and on and on will be able to look back at this book and still get to remember my mom when she's gone. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. And the way this works is that they'll get an email every single week and it'll have a question for them to answer. And you as the giver get to see the question ahead of time and you can decide, do I want them to answer that question or would I like to make up a different question or skip to another question? So it's all up to you what that loved one gets asked. And then you also get an email in return after your loved one has answered the question so you can already see what's going to be in the book later. It really is a great way to keep you guys connected throughout the entire year. Then after the year is done, StoryWorth compiles all of your loved one's stories, including any photos. You can add photos to this and they put it in a beautiful keepsake book like what I was describing that we have for my mom. And I know one of the stories that my mom shared in the book was about how she and my dad met each other. Both of my folks were at this dance. It was on a base. My mom worked at the Pentagon. My dad was in the military. They were there with other people, but they ended up going home together because my mom got a ride from my dad and they sat and talked to each other for hours. And he even asked her to marry him at the end of that evening. And they weren't on a date together. So they didn't even really have a first date before they were engaged. It's such an amazing story. And I'm so glad that it's now available for us for years to come. With StoryWorth, you can give those that you love most a thoughtful, personal gift from the heart and preserve their memories and stories for years to come. Go to StoryWorth.com slash HistoryGhostBump and save $10 on your first purchase. That's StoryWorth.com slash HistoryGhostBump to save $10 on your first purchase. 
The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastic into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at HeftyRenew.com. Green Clay, so now we're back to Cassius Clay's father, built a home in Richmond, Kentucky on rolling farmland in 1798, and he called it Claremont. So not only is this the same name as the town that we live in, Kelly, but it's spelled exactly the same way, too. I know. Imagine that. Synchronicity. This was built with slave labor and outshined the log cabins that most people in the region owned. So there was a lot of people moving into this area, but they didn't have a whole lot of money. So they were just kind of putting up these ramshackle kind of places. So you can imagine Green Clay comes in here and he's building this glorious house. And people are like, wow, that's nothing like what we got over here. The house was designed in the Georgian architectural style and had seven rooms and covered 3,000 square feet. The first floor had a large hall on one side and a dining room and parlor on the other side. The upstairs had four bedrooms with fireplaces. The house also had something that most didn't at that time, an attic and a basement. Cassius Clay inherited the property, and he thought of his father's home as the old building. When they talk about Whitehall of Kentucky, they call it the house within the house. We've heard of people like adding on to a house. This one is going to be like he built around the house. Kind of bizarre. Yeah. In the 1860s, he did a major renovation to the house, which was a huge expansion. And as I already mentioned, it was his wife who had to take care of all of this because he's over in Russia while they're doing this. This was constructed above and around the Claremont and was also done in brick with elements of Georgian and Italianate architecture. So he added a little bit of what was already kind of the same styling, but he really liked the Italianate stuff. A large portion of the house mostly looks like Italianate. The architect was Thomas Lewinsky, and it was built by John McMurdy. This rebuilt mansion is going to go from 3,000 square feet to 10,000 square feet, and it expanded the seven rooms to 44 rooms. Good grief. Not only that, it had central heating and indoor plumbing. The central heat came from two basement fireboxes. The water also is not going to be exactly what you're thinking. The water for the bathroom was collected from rainwater on the roof, so they had like a cistern there, and then they piped it to the bathroom. The bathroom had a bathtub made from a hollowed-out poplar tree that was lined with copper. Wow. Very different. Whitehall was put up for auction, and Clay's grandson, Warfield Bennett, bought the mansion, but over the years, it fell into neglect. Tenant farmers used it for storage, with total disregard to the beautiful home. They used the house to store hay bales, and the roof eventually caved in, allowing the elements into the house. So you can imagine, you've got this 10,000 square foot mansion, and farmers want the land, but not the house. So they're like, hmm, that'd make a really nice shed, I guess. I mean, hay barn. <laughs> hay bales, they had tractors in there. I don't even know how they got the tractors into this. I don't know if they took out part of a wall or something. Oh, my word. But I was just like, wow, I don't know how you take a mansion like this. And then after this has been done, that somehow they're going to be able to restore it. The home was donated to the Commonwealth of Kentucky in 1968 by descendants of the Clay family. Kentucky First Lady Beulah C. Nunn oversaw the restoration, 
and it was dedicated on September 16th, 1971. Shortly before somebody's birthday. I was just thinking about a month before I was born. Whitehall is today a museum and event venue, now managed by Eastern Kentucky University. It's a favorite spot for weddings, and sometimes an extra uninvited guest pops up in wedding photos. These guests aren't alive either. Whitehall is reputedly haunted. There are tales of women in black here, as well as the spirits of children. There are many nose pictures too, Kelly. (laughs) I just love using that term now that we have it. People smell rose perfume, cigar smoke, burning candles, and brandy. Clearly, Mr. Clay liked brandy with a cigar. And the candle smell probably goes along with people claiming to see candle lights around the perimeter of the house and moving through the house. I don't know if this is residual servants, enslaved people who would have been carrying the candles throughout the house for lighting. I'm not sure where that's coming from. It's very strange. I've never heard of, you know, just these candles that are floating all around the perimeter of the house. Sometimes music from a piano or violin is heard, and there's no known cause for it. Lights get turned off and on in rooms that are unoccupied, and disembodied footsteps are heard. Unseen dinner parties take place in the dining room. Kevin McQueen, a former guide at the house, wrote about this in his 2001 book, Cassius M. Clay, Freedom's Champion. The ghosts of Whitehall appear to have a certain fondness for playing tricks with the lights. When renovations began on Whitehall in the later 1960s, a trailer was placed near the house for the guards to stay at night. Reportedly, almost every night, the guards would watch a single ball of light moving from window to window in the second floor master bedroom. McQueen also wrote, Often the strong smell of pipe smoke or perfume will come seemingly out of nowhere, fill only a particular room or two, then abruptly disappear without fading away. What I love about this book that he wrote is that this is supposed to just be focusing basically on Cassius Clay in his life. Somehow he ends up throwing all these ghost stories into it too, which you would not normally get just having a biography about somebody. I love it. Former park manager Kathleen White told the Lane Report in 2007 There's something that goes on here. I hesitate to say it's haunted because it's all in how you view it. There are things I've seen, things I've heard, smells I've smelled out of the ordinary that I cannot explain. Yeah, if you're hitting all your senses, there's something going on there. Many employees have seen the lady in black, and some even claim that she was actually wearing blue. One employee said that he had seen the end of a hooped black gown turn a corner and disappear down the stairs to Green Clay's room. Other employees have seen different colored dresses, which makes one wonder if this is like an aura. Because you hear a lot of stories coming out of here are these tales of women in black. And of course, it might just be one lady in black specifically. But when you have all these different people saying, I saw this colored dress, I saw, you know, a green one, a blue one, a purple one. It made me think about McPike Mansion and the way that the different spirits would show up as a particular color. And they would always kind of stick to that color. So it makes me wonder, are these different spirits or is it the same spirit and people are just seeing it however they want to be presented that day? Or I don't know, because, you know, your auras are all different colors. So can you have an aura if you're a spirit? Question for all of you out there, especially if you believe in auras. Is that a possibility? Interesting, to be sure. Patty Starr is a certified ghost hunter, researcher, lecturer, teacher and tour guide with decades of experience under her belt. She runs the Bardstown Ghost Trek and has investigated Whitehall many times. One evening, she was at the house taping for Halloween 
with a Lexington News team when they picked up a voice saying, I'm ready, Clay. Patty believes this may have been one of the robbers that Clay faced off with in the mansion. The cameraman was pretty freaked out by this. Star writes about the house in her 2010 book, Ghost Hunting Kentucky, and her first time visiting in 2001, she thought she saw someone in an upstairs window looking out at her as she got out of the car. She found out that no one was in the house, but many people have seen the same thing as her. Former tour guide Charles was taking a group through the house, and he told Star that he was explaining the plumbing to the guests when he glanced up and saw the form of a woman on the third floor landing. He could see her from the neck down. She was wearing a white blouse and a navy blue hooped skirt. He could see right through her. And the strange thing about this story, too, is that if I understand the way that it was told in the book, there was another staff member that was standing up there, too. So it's almost like he saw both of them side by side, but he could see that he could see through the one. Wow. And when he talked to this other employee afterward, and he was like, did you notice somebody standing next to you or see anything? The employee was like, no. (laughs) So it's very strange that he was the only one who saw the spirit, too. That's another one of those things that just blows my mind that I always wonder about is like, why is it sometimes that you have a whole group that'll see an apparition and then other times it's just one person? Right. Guys usually dress in period clothing. One day, two of them were playing around on the stairway when they saw a man walk into one of the bedrooms on the second floor. He turned and looked at them before disappearing beyond the doorway. He was wearing older clothing, so they at first thought it was another guide. They went downstairs and mentioned that they saw a male guide go into a bedroom on the second floor, and the other guides looked around and said that no one was missing. A couple of the employees went upstairs and found no one. A woman named Misty Dawn got married at Whitehall, and she and her husband Tommy had pictures taken while posing inside. In one picture, it looks as though a white apparition is hovering above them. They shared the picture with Star, and it's a very interesting photo. We'll put this up on Instagram and see what you guys think. Now, when you first look at the picture, Kelly, they're like standing, I believe this is probably where the front door is, and then there's a window next to it that has a curtain that's kind of going down it diagonally. Yeah, like a lacy curtain. And you can see above it that there's this big white blotch, almost looks like it has a head and some shoulders kind of coming down. And then you can't really make out the bottom of it. I don't know. I mean, I just almost wonder if it could be like a double exposure type of situation. Just with the shape of it, maybe following along that shape of the curtain. Yeah, I didn't know if it was like maybe some kind of weird lighting some kind of a splotching when the picture was made, that there was just a a splotch that happened to be right there. It is interesting that it seems to be kind of above the husband in the picture, and it's off to the right-hand side of him, and it kind of looks like it's standing the way that he's standing. If you were to take his body and move it up, like how you were saying there was a double exposure. Mm -hmm, I can see that. It's weird. We'll put it up on Instagram and see what you guys think. Of course, you know with me, When it comes to pictures, at least I do have to say this about it. It doesn't look directly like a ghost. So when I see those, I start to go, okay, did you doctor the picture? And most people aren't going to want to doctor a wedding picture. Well, this is true. Because really, if you look at this picture, regardless of what it is, it kind of ruins it. Because you've got this white, weird splotch that's just kind of lighter than the rest of the picture. Yeah, I would crop it. <laughs> yeah, to cut that out. But then you'd miss all the great... I know, the architecture and the, the beautiful chandelier. 
Yeah, that crown molding. I mean, you're going to want that in the picture. And then there's a chandelier literally right above them, which, again, makes me wonder if it's throwing something back because the chandelier lighting. I don't know. Whitehall was the home of a man who was a bigger than life character. So it's not surprising that he might still be hanging around in the afterlife. His first wife loved this home and probably wasn't happy to lose it in the divorce. Has she returned as a spirit? Is Whitehall haunted? That is for you to decide. Yeah, they don't really know who the spirits in here are for sure, but they're pretty sure that Clay is one of them. And it would make sense. His wife was there for all the renovations. She spent a long time in this house raising her children, probably has a connection to it, and to lose it in a divorce where, you know, it was in his family. So he's like, this is the family home, you're out. I could see her wanting to be back here. It'd be interesting if you do have both of their spirits here. We often wonder, do spirits know of each other in the same place, especially if you're from the same time period? I'm not sure when his uh, first wife passed away, but what's it like having them in the same location right. in the afterlife because they probably don't get along real well. Yeah, he definitely was a character. I mean, I really love the parts of him that were an emancipator coming out of Kentucky. I mean, this was unheard of. You know, this was right. not a, a, a way that you could actually present yourself to the public. And yet he still managed to get elected to a lot of political offices. But he was a fighter, a scrabbler, all kinds of stuff, which you would need to be if you're an emancipator in the South. But then in his 80s, he lost his mind with that girl. I just, you know, I would like to think if we want to believe the best of him, that he saw this young orphan girl who needed somebody to take care of her and basically married her instead of adopting her, which would have been a better route. I don't know. But clearly it didn't work out since she was like, I'm out of here after four years. Or maybe he kicked her to the curb after four years. I don't know. He needed something younger. <laughs> I guess. But I'm thinking if you're in your 80s, are you even thinking about that anymore? <laughs> I wasn't going there, but yeah. <laughs> well, it looks like a really cool place to hang out. If we ever get up to see Jerry and Tracy, we need to head on over and check out Whitehall there in Kentucky. Most definitely. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Kelly, really cool. You know, Spotify at the end of the year always does their rap stuff. So we've really been loving seeing all of you guys sharing your wrapped and you usually have History Goes Bump in your top five. And there's some people who've listened to thousands and thousands and thousands of minutes of the podcast. I know. It's amazing. I think right now our top one is 68,000 minutes. That's a lot of listening. It sure is. Rose. And it says that she spent 68,753 minutes listening to us. That is just amazing. I tell you what, if that holds, we're going to have to send her something. Oh, yeah, definitely. So if anybody's listened more, you better let us know. Yeah, anybody (laughs) beats out 68,000, let us know. And of course, for those of you who are executive producers, you're going to be getting something in the mail here pretty soon as our Christmas mailing. I want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode isn't brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Krista Duin. I hope we're saying that right. It's D-O-U-I-N. And Kevin Freeman. Both of you are going to be placed in chest tombs. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. You really do help bring the show to the masses. Join me in the cemetery by becoming an executive producer. You can join on Patreon or PayPal. 
Check out the Support the Show tab on the website for more information. Kentucky legislature later. <laughs> He's the whole legislature, not just one. <laughs> when Curtius died, he left his collection of waxworks to dis- He left his collection of waxworks to. Dis- I can't say to toast. To toast. To Too much toast. This inspired Clay to pursue joining the anti-abolitionist movement. Yeah. Just got to get my mouth to slow down.